Hello and welcome back. I'm Paul Heaney, VP Editorial Director of R&D World Magazine. I'm here with my super incredible host, co-host, Amy Kalnaskis, for the fifth installment of the R&D 100 podcast. And in this podcast, we examine the science of innovation and try and keep you up to date on the latest research. As always, thanks for tuning in. Tuning in. Oh, that's that's wonderfully analog relic from the 70s. <laughs> you know, just just to remind you, this this is a podcast, okay? Just so we're true, speaking. true. All right, but anyway, hey, I appreciate it. I, you know, our listeners could be sitting around the radio with their family listening, right? Right. That's possible. Anyway. <laughs> hey, uh, hello, dear listeners. This is Amy Kalnaskis, R and D World's senior editor. As Paul was saying, each episode takes a deep dive into a former R&D 100 winner. Now, if your reaction is, what's an R&D 100 winner? I've got to ask, where have you been? <laughs> well, you know, if you're not familiar with the R&D 100 awards, this science and technology awards competition was, in, was created way back in 1963. And uh, each year it recognizes new commercial products and technologies and materials for their technological significance. There are six regular categories, as well as five special recognition categories, including a new one for 2021 we're excited about, special recognition battling COVID-19. Yeah, very cool. Hey, you know, if your team has an innovative new product, technology, material, piece of software, or service that's game-changing and has come out since January 1st of 2020, you're eligible to submit for the 2021 R&D 100 Awards. Simply visit rdworld.com online.com that's rdworldonline.com one word and you'll see a menu bar item at the top that says r&d 100 awards just hover over that and you'll see an enter now option appear so uh the deadline for submissions is may 7th there's also a late deadline but the entry fee goes up hundred dollars for that so i would say may 7th is the date you should keep in your head yeah. we would love to see your submissions this year uh, we're hoping that we may be able to do our wonderful in-person gala dinner in November. If you keep uh, getting your vaccines now and help us tamp down this pandemic. So fingers crossed. Yeah, awesome. I'd love to be able to do the in-person thing again, right? <laughs> For sure. I am uh, so ready to get on that stage with you again, Amy. Yeah, well, we've got to get there. And I don't know, there's a little more of me than there was last year. So I have a little more of all of us. <laughs> and, and we will get there. I'm going to focus on positive energy here, okay? Um, well, Paul, before we dive into this week's topic, anything on the newsy front we need to talk about? Um, I don't know about new. Well, I guess it's newsy. I, I have one exciting piece of news to share, although it's already eh, maybe a few weeks old. That's okay. I'll take it. What, what is it? All right. Well, we've brought back an old favorite thing from several years ago. So longtime R&D readers will probably recognize this. It's the R&D World Index which appears on our website, which as Amy mentioned earlier is rdworldonline.com. This uh, index appears every Monday morning. It's uh, once again written by retired publication editor, Tim Stutt, who is, I mean, such a brilliant writer in the R&D space and has been for decades. Yeah, he is. And I, I remember him from 30 or 40 years ago as well. I know he's retired, but sometimes I think he just doesn't want to get away from this industry he loves. He's still in it. <laughs> you, you hit the nail on the head, Amy. Um, so the RNG World Index is the curated stock index of the 25 top international companies that spend the most in their industrial R&D departments. 
Um, so along with the updated statistics of the index each week, you know, how much the, the stock index is up or down, Tim writes a little bit about what's happening in the world that is particularly affecting these companies and like their respective industries. So it's always a delightful and I would say insightful read. Yeah, and part of that's because Tim really does know how to break things down. So, hey, if you haven't had the chance to look at this new weekly series, I suggest that you check it out. Um, honestly, it's pretty much required reading if you want to keep abreast of what's going on. I agree. Um, I did lie. I think we should mention one more thing here. I, I have, so I guess I have two newsy things. Hmm. Is it another Tim thing? <laughs> you are a mind reader. Eh, I am. So another project that Tim is always heavily involved in is our annual global R&D funding forecast, or we like to call it the GFF around here for shorthand. Uh, this year's GFF, which is always highly anticipated, is out. You can find the executive summary, which uh, is broken down into, I think it's five parts on the R&D World website. Um, that executive summary is also going to be published, you know, Amy, in the April print issue of R&D World, mm, okay. uh, and that's going to be out shortly. Then we also have the full, I think it's 54 or 56 page, uh, you know, grand version of the GFF. And that one is for sale on the website. And that includes tons more insights on you know, individual countries and regions of the world, as well as focuses on some different markets, whether it be aerospace or materials, chemicals, life sciences, and so on. Huh. So um, for those of us who are behind in our reading, and I can't explain <laughs> why, you know, being in COVID, but can you still buy last year's full report? Uh, you can. Um, actually, we have most of the old reports for sale on the website, you know, the full reports going back to 2008. And we we're actually in the process of adding to that library. Um, we had some old ones that we scanned in and then we found some uh, digital versions of some old ones. So anytime now, um, you'll be able to purchase the GFF reports going back to, I think it's about 1958. Uh, there's some gaps in the, mostly in the seventies and eighties where there simply were no archives saved, you know, from the publisher years ago. So, um, please do check out that section of the website too. There's a menu bar right on our homepage that says, uh, it's like 2021 funding forecast. So you can get there and, and see all that stuff. You know, that it's a Herculean effort. I know I've seen this and it's, it's kudos to you and the rest of the staff there. It's so much information. <laughs> I can't take it, Paul. <laughs> <laughs> Does that mean we're done here today? I think your brain is full and we can just sign off, right? No, no, no. And I have a feeling our audiences, but their collective brains aren't full. So, hey, I do want oh, to get true. today's R&D 100 winner. And I recall you saying last episode, I, I do remember some things, okay, that okay. we were going to talk about a really cool innovation in minimally invasive procedures for infants. You are right. Let's uh, let's go ahead and get to it. Hey. So today we are talking about a very recent winner. This is actually from our 2020 class of R&D 100 winners. This is Abbott's Amplizer Piccolo Occluder. It's a self-expanding wire mesh device. So, all right, here's me going into medical mode. So watch out, Amy. I'm ready. So prior to birth, the ductus arteriosus, which is the artery that connects the aorta to the pulmonary artery, it remains open so that blood can bypass the lungs and flow directly into the heart. Now, for most babies, their ductus arteriosus closes shortly after they're born, but in some cases that hole just fails to close. So this means that a newborn's blood is skipping a critical step of their circulation. Uh, I'm told it's a, not surprisingly, a potentially life-threatening condition known as 
patent ductus arteriosus or PDA, and it does require urgent medical attention. Oh, well, that's a far more serious and perhaps more useful PDA than the type we used to joke about in the past. <laughs> that's true, like in high school, right? <laughs> For you, Paul. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe maybe a little later. Anyway, the, uh, the piccolo occluder is inserted through a small opening in the leg, and then they guide it up through their vessels to the heart, where it's placed to seal that opening. So it's really, it's like a pea, like a little green pea, a pea-sized technology um, that's inserted through the aortic or the pulmonary artery, and it can be retrieved or redeployed for the best placement. Um, soon after undergoing the procedure, many premature babies are able to be weaned off of you know, artificial respiratory, respiratory support, which is, I mean, it's really a critical first step to getting out of the NICU and then eventually, you know, back home with their families. Mm, amazing just ugh, very cool and I joke but seriously what an amazing life-saving innovation this must be for families that are struggling with these medical issues like right after the joy of giving birth I, I can't even imagine the roller coaster of emotions oh right I, yeah it's it's unfathomable uh, okay so wow so you said this was from Abbott Paul yeah, yeah it is uh so let's start off let's hear by hear from two of the main people involved uh we're gonna hear from Santosh Prabhu and Brad Roberts. First up is Santosh, and then uh, Brad will follow. Uh, currently, I'm the Divisional Vice President of Product Development for Abbott Structure Heart, so I'm responsible for all the product development activities, developing the product portfolio across all the Structure Heart franchises. Uh, my background, uh, I'm a aerospace and mechanical engineer by training, and uh, but I haven't worked a single day in the aerospace field. My first job out of school was designing cardiovascular stents for a company known as Guidant Corporation. So they were acquired by Abbott. And that's how I came to Abbott. And then I spent uh, you know, th the first 13 years of my career working on stents and angioplasty systems. And around 2014 is when I started working on MitroClip and helped MitroClip evolve. And about a year and a half ago, I took on the broader role with the responsibilities for all of, uh, all of Structure Heart product development, including um, all the structure interventions products too. Okay, uh, I'll jump in here. Um, so I've been with uh, Abbott for coming up on 13 years. My formal training is in chemical engineering and uh, immediately out of college, I uh, started working in the pharmaceutical industry for Eli Lilly and company, working on uh, all things insulin, insulin uh, process development, insulin manufacturing and uh, transitioned from pharmaceuticals into medical devices. And 32 years later, here I am uh, as part of the Abbott Structural Heart uh, Business Unit, serving in the Divisional Vice President of Operations and Supply Chain role, uh, really supporting all the, all the manufacturer products that Santosh's team develops. Okay, Amy, so let's get back to PDAs. I'm not saying a word. <laughs> So Santosh explained that one of the things that Abbott is really good at is identifying a need and then developing solutions around it. So in the case of Piccolo, the largest cause of death in babies in the United States is complications from premature birth. Uh, about one in 10 babies here are born premature. And out of those babies that are born premature, roughly one out of five of them has this patent ductus arteriosus or PDA. That's where they saw the need for de developing a solution. 
prior to birth is actually the, the ductus arteriosus that actually is required. It's needed because it uh, helps bypass the blood uh, away from the lungs. Um, but once the baby is born, usually uh, the ductus arteriosus closes. Okay, in some cases, however, it is patent. So that hence patent ductus arteriosus, in which case it becomes a, a source of complication and is the largest congenital uh, defect in premature babies. Um, so in uh, in the case of uh, so we identified that as a as a need right um, uh, to help the tiniest of our of our patients um, and for them actually there isn't wasn't a very definitive solution um, in most cases uh, they had to wait for surgery and for such premature babies there were a lot of complications associated with the surgeries itself or the doctor would make uh, the patient the baby wait. Uh, till it becomes a little larger, so then they could use a device that is actually designed for adults. Um, now, in the process of waiting, they'll have to suffer from those complications, and some of those babies might not make it. So, what we identified as a, we identified that as a need, and we were well positioned to develop the solution because we have the whole Amplatzer product family, right? We have we have 20 years of clinical success using that product, and we also have the uh, ADO2 device, which was actually used in adults and larger uh, pediatric applications for larger babies, right? So we used that technology, which we already had in-house to develop a smaller implant. So the, the, uh, uh, the Piccolo is, a, is, a, is based off the ADO2, but it's a P size, uh, smaller than a P actually, um, and is used, uh, delivered uh, uh, via a little incision in, the, incision in the leg, a tiny incision in the leg, and it goes and blocks the, the PDA for these tiny babies. So it was an it's a very good example of how we identified a need. We had the solution in-house, the technology elements in-house, and then we innovated and built the solution and brought it to our, uh, to, uh, and used it to actually save the lives of these babies. So I'll note here that there is a similar minimally invasive procedure that was actually designed for adults, but it is not the best option for these tiny, tiny infants. So developing the Piccolo was a very good idea. And it's really proven itself, Amy. Santosh explained that they have now performed more than a thousand cases over the past two years since the product was approved in the U.S. back in uh, January of 2019. Hmm. Hmm. Okay, Paul, just to pick on one point for a second, is the whole going into the leg part of the procedure, is that typical or atypical compared to performing the same procedure on an older patient? Um, actually, that's a real common means of delivering the product. Um, I was told that they do it for all different kinds of structured intervention products. So they do it for stents and angioplasty systems. Um, they do it with another Abbott product called the MitraClip. So I, I think it's a pretty common means of doing the procedure on the interventional side. Um, you know, with something like open heart surgery, I mean, it's, it's open heart surgery. That's not a minimally invasive uh, thing, you know, just by definition. Yeah. Um, there's no minimally invasive way of doing open heart surgery. But the piccolo is a minimally invasive way of treating the PDA, which otherwise, I mean, it would have had to have been done by open heart surgery. Ugh, I can't imagine open heart surgery yet because I'm thinking, all right, I got that part, but you said premature or very small infants. So what kind of like what size children are we really talking about here so, so believe it or not these babies can be less than two pounds so if you uh, usually if you treat them really early as soon as possible with the piccolo 
sometimes it can be within, I would say the first three to seven days that they're being treated. Um, and for private treatment, they have to be put on a ventilator because you know they have problems breathing. Uh, Santosh explained that they've seen as soon as they do the procedure using Piccolo, these children can be weaned off the ventilator and they can breathe on their own pretty quickly. Um, they start recovering and progressing almost immediately in terms of their growth and putting on weight and, and all these important milestones. They start, I mean, behaving like regular babies. Which is entirely the point, right? <laughs> right, you are. All right, I wanna hear a bit more about how this device or the procedure actually works. Get me to the nitty gritty, Paul. Okay, I can do that with a little more assistance from Santosh. The way it is done is, uh, it is the, it, 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 to a tiny incision in the leg, the catheter guides the device uh, through the, uh, so it goes through the, uh, uh, the inferior vena cava, it goes through the, uh, the tricuspid valve, it goes into the pulmonary artery, and then it finds its way into the PDA. And that is where it needs to be placed. Now, the beauty of this device is that the doctor can optimize the placement to block the PDA. So you can actually deploy the device, retract it, and place it back position accurately so that you get the best outcomes. Uh, when you look at it under fluoro and under, under echo. Um, and the, the doctor can ensure that the PDA is, is, is blocked. And once it's blocked, it's blocked. Um, you know, it's not that the patient, uh, the baby would have to go to a repeat procedure or none of that. Um, now, very soon it's covered with tissue and it becomes part of the, you know, the baby's uh, anatomy. And so it's completely blocked. The only thing that the doctor has to do is maybe within uh, for the first two years, every six months, you do a, a echo to make sure that uh, everything is fine. So when it comes to designing medical devices, I'm sure it's sort of like, a, you know, it takes a village to raise a kid kind of thing. My guess is that they <laughs> built out a very, they must, a very cross-functional team for something like this. And, then, and I know in previous podcasts, we keep running across that theme of cross-functionality. Yeah. So am I right on this one? Oh, of course, you you definitely are. Um, they had engineers with background in, I'm probably gonna pronounce this wrong, but nitinol, I think, which is basically what the implant is made out of. Um, they had they had team members in braiding technology, you know, braiding the fibers together. Um, others with a background in catheters, you know, because a catheter is obviously a very important part of the system too. You've got to thread the whole device through the vascular system and, and deliver it to the PDA correctly. Um, then there's the manufacturing side of it, which is also, much more intricate and complex than I would have guessed. Mm. Um, the manufacturing engineers, the operators who build the device, they even have to go through some pretty rigorous training. And then on top of that, you've got people from the quality end. You know, those are the people who, who make sure that they meet all of Abbott's stringent quality requirements. And I mean, let's not forget the regulatory affairs team. You know, they've got to make sure all of the submission information is put together and put together right, you know, because they want to get a speedy approval. Oh, yeah, sure. But Yikes. I think I underestimated a bit and how many layers there were to this process and, and oh, incredible. Wow. It is. Um, and actually, let me share a little bit more from Brad, who spoke about the manufacturing side of things. Okay. The Piccolo device is extremely complex to manufacture, uh, really due to its size uh, of being smaller than a pea. So it's braided nitinol wire. And if you can imagine, the nitinol wire is smaller in diameter than a human hair. So much of the manufacturing, while it takes place on highly complex equipment, relies very heavily on very skilled manufacturing 
uh, personnel to perform many manual tasks. So the, the forming of the shape of the piccolo device is performed by hand. And the operators who are performing this task by hand go through many weeks of training, upwards of six weeks of training to become proficient at this formation process to yield not only uh, the device that, that meets the requirements we want it to have, but to do so in a manner that uh, uh, makes, makes the manufacturing viable so they can produce the product um, you know, uh, in quantity uh, and meeting all of the quality requirements that we have. So, so it's really a unique device in that it's, it's very complex, requires high levels of, of equipment and automation, but also very high uh, degrees of manual dexterity for the production operators who complete the assembly. Well, I had no idea that the manufacturing had to involve so much manual dexterity. I mean, that's really impressive. I, I do recall you saying something offline about there being no real competitor to this. Is that right? Yeah, you're right. Um, the Piccolo, uh, from what I've been told, is the first of its kind. And it's really the only approved device by the FDA for this sort of procedure. Okay, considering the layers, considering the manufacturing complexity, mm -hmm. there, what, there had to be some other challenges along the way, even with this, this incredibly diverse team that you've described. And come on, I can't imagine, can't, we can't imagine there wasn't even a tiny hiccup somewhere, right? Was there? Um, I, I don't know if there were really any hiccups that were explained to me, but you know, I think Abbott does a lot with their preclinical bench testing to, you know, make sure they avoid these kind of missteps, major or minor. So here's how Santosh described it to me. And we test how the product is delivered, how it's deployed in that anatomy. So we did extensive amount of testing. And a lot of these models are actually based on actual patient anatomy. Um, and we tried to build, you know, using different materials and technologies, we tried to build those models and evaluate the product prototypes in those, in those models. So we did that. Uh, then we also evaluate them, if possible, in animal models. Um, and so the, that's how we bring this product. Uh, that's how we bring this product to a state where now it is ready for uh, either enrollment in clinical trial or for commercial uh, or, or for commercial approval. Now, um, you know, once we develop the the product, uh, we also uh, uh, have an advisory. We have advisory boards and other forums where we continuously gather feedback on how the product is performing so we can use that as an input when we develop our next generation of uh, next generation of product you know do we need multiple sizes do we need a, a different features from the catheter right what else can we do to improve uh, the the effectiveness and the safety of the product those are things that we can always consider for not just for piccolo but you know in general for all product development and structure market hmm. okay well that seems quite logical i like it well, we always promise our listeners that we're going to dig into innovation and how it happens. So what did Santosh and Brad tell you about that? Well, what they told me was, I would say, you know, pretty straightforward. Um, make sure that you have creative people on your team, especially in the early stages of development. Um, go ahead and, you know, test your different options that you come up with. Make sure you communicate. I mean, that sort of thing. Um, pretty, pretty basic, but, but pretty important. So here they are in their own words. I don't know if there's a magic formula for it. Uh, I wish there was. And if you do know, find out, let me know. Uh, but it involves, a, you know, it's a lot of, uh, basically, it's a, as I said, it's a very collaborative effort, right? First, you have to identify the need, right? And I think you're very good at that. Then we have to identify what, uh, so you identify a need, but how many patients, how broad is the in, uh, impact that 
you know, the developing a solution is going to have. Uh, what is the intensity of the impact? Not just, not just the number of people is going to impact, but also how intense, how much, you know, how life-saving is it really going to be? Is it just going to relieve the symptoms or is it actually going to save their lives or prevent the progression of the disease, right? Um, uh, so we do that. Then we look at the addressable market sites, right? Because, you know, we have to pay for the R&D to do all this work, right? Uh, then we form a small teams of creative engineers who actually go and try to find a solution. So you have a need, there are different solution options. Um, we, uh, we screen all these using uh, different bench testing and animal models and all that, right? So we do all that initial testing. And from there, we finalize it down to a few prototypes, a uh, few, maybe one or two concepts. And then we take those concepts and uh, dig a little bit deeper and do more real, more R&D on it um, to come up with a come up with a final product now, which can either start enrolling in early stage clinical trials. Um, now, also at the same time, we look at, uh, you know, make sure that Brad's team is involved uh, because uh, at, at some point we want to manufacture these on a large scale, right? Uh, initially for the clinical trials, uh, you know, you might want a few, a few devices made, but then as you, you know, uh, want to ramp this up, you have to make sure that it is manufacturable, manufacturable also. And the sooner you think about it, the better, better, better it is, right? So um, that's how we would do it, right? And now uh, in terms of innovation too, uh, we need uh, a different, uh, you know, different mindset. There has to be in the early stage, you have to have engineers who are really creative in their thinking, right? And as you go later on, you know, you need uh, engineers who are more sort of, the, the, it's in their wheelhouse to take this concept, early stage concept, and then take it to, you know, a final, fully final product, right? So we have to think through all of that. Um, now, as we innovate also, we have to be open to the fact that not all our ideas are going to be, going to uh, succeed, right? So we have to, we have to uh, not only recognize successes, but also celebrate failures. And the sooner you fail, the better, because you, you can move on to the next, next concept. Santosh described very well the, the product uh, innovation. Uh, I think another unique aspect of innovation with the, in particular, the Piccolo device is the outcomes that we see. So Santosh and I have both had the opportunity to observe uh, little kids who have had the device actually implanted, seeing patients running around playing, uh, in one case with her twin sister, uh, because of the innovation brought by uh, the Piccolo device is just incredible. That's where it really strikes home for me. That's really cool. Um, one of the reasons I love being involved in the R&D 100 wards, Paul, is that we get to celebrate these incredible teams like Abbott's. <laughs> I, and we all need something to celebrate, right? We do. <laughs> I really think they deserve recognition for the work they do and the breakthroughs. And I'm sure this award meant a lot to them. I, I am with you, Amy. We do need, we do need to celebrate here in yeah. 2021. Um, both Santosh and Brad expressed how meaningful the award was to them. For me, winning the award is more sort of a, a validation of all the hard work that uh, that the team put in to uh, so to develop the solution um, for uh, an underserved uh, you know population, right? Uh, prematurely born babies in in the, in the case of uh, case of Piccolo. So it's a um, I can speak for myself and for for the uh, the entire team that was working on it that it's a very uh, fulfilling experience, right? Um, um, and as I said, in some cases we get to meet. Uh, meet these patients and see the impact that this technology has had on their lives and on the lives of you know on the lives of their uh, 
of their on the of the parents, right? Basically, we're trying we're keeping a family together with just this little tiny implant. Yeah, I, just reflecting from the manufacturing team as well. Um, the team takes great pride in bringing to market uh, these technologies like Piccolo that that do truly change uh, individuals and families' lives. The team is very proud of, of that. All right, and that is all that I've got today. <laughs> all that you've got. <laughs> well, that was a lot, Paul. <laughs> and honestly, this is like one of the most interesting and educational times of the you know our of the month here. So as always, thank you for all this. Oh, I, I appreciate that, and you are most welcome. I you know these uh, these brilliant scientists and engineering uh, scientists and engineers are doing uh, you know the hard work, and I'm just reporting on it. Yeah, give yourself a little more credit. <laughs> well, I think our role, by the way, is important too, because we're bringing these stories to life and to help inspire others in the world of R&D. Well, uh, good point. So, well, it's been fun. It is always fun with you in the broadcast booth, so to speak. <laughs> Even if yours and mine are separated by what, like 2,200 miles or something? <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's not think about that. But, uh, you know, someday soon we will be back together. I'm... Uh, I'm due for my Pfizer shot number two in a couple of days, and uh, I can't wait to get uh, our country uh, moving again. Woohoo! Well, Paul, hey, good timing here because this morning um, California made the uh, vaccines available to the over 50 crowd. I won't tell you nice. how far over 50 I am, but just say I'm eligible. And not only that, <laughs> I went to like four different sites to try to get appointments, and it went from nothing to all of a sudden there were appointments for tomorrow. So oh my gosh. I'm getting my J&J, &J, so just one shot tomorrow e early evening. Pretty excited. So um, congratulations. Just, yeah, thanks to you too. Um, <laughs> hey, uh, that's that. And we're going to be just all wonderfully vaccinated by episode six, right? So is that in the works? Let's hope. <laughs> um, it is uh, very soon. Uh, we're going to be examining something that is already changing avocados near you. <laughs> I'm sure I heard that right, but did I hear it right? Did you say avocados? <laughs> I did. And actually, I'm gonna I'm gonna say here that since we drank liquor on I think it was episode three where we talked about yeah, that related yeah. technology, I am gonna hereby suggest that maybe we each make guacamole while we are recording episode six. Oh, I love that idea. Um, absolutely. And you know, or, or, or avocado toast if that's more. <laughs> I am not going to go there. I think I'll stick with the guac and okay. not, to, not to, you know, brag or anything, but there are a couple avocado trees down the street. So I'm just going to go pick and then make. <laughs> All right. You have an advantage over me here in uh, Chile, Ohio. Well, hey, as always, if you're a past R&D 100 award winner and you have an interesting creation or a development story to tell, we need to talk. Please email us the details at researchdevelopment at wt whmedia.com. That's research development at wtwhmedia.com. We're always on the lookout for topics for future R&D 100 podcast episodes. And please make sure to subscribe to the podcast and follow us both on Twitter at eeworld underscore Amy, which is A-I-M-E-E, and at wtwh underscore Paul Heaney, P-A-U-L-H-E-N-E-Y. So until next time, this is Paul Heaney here. And Amy Kelnoskis near the avocados over here. <laughs> Signing off. 
Thanks so much for listening and we'll see you next time.